Beyond the Codes. What sets German coaching apart? By Jonathan Harding. Available from oakleybooks.co.uk and from Amazon. Chapter 2. Competence. Competence. We don't learn for tests, but for life. Frank Vormut. Welcoming from the start, Frank Vormut is like an old friend you haven't seen in months, but when you do, it's like you've never been away. For the majority of the past nine years, he has been the chief coaching instructor of Germany's coaching academy in Hennef. Without Frank, this would be just another sleepy town tucked away in a forest in Germany. But instead, it's the understated birthplace of Germany's finest coaches. Past the corridor, along which tactical outlines of Germany's greatest goals hang on glass, lies a cluster of modest classrooms that would be at home at any primary school. Beyond that lies an office split in two. There's something humble about the place, simple but quietly full of a special power. Its charm doesn't lie in its appearance, it lies in the people. It's not the world, Frank tells me. But you've moved worlds with it, I reply. Yes, I like that. It's not the world, but we've moved worlds with it. Trademark it, he replies, with a huge grin that I get used to seeing over the course of the day. I wanted to talk to Frank about the highest level of coaching education in Germany, to find out about the details of the course, how personal the approach was, and how coaches like Julian Nagelsmann or Domenico Tedesco developed into the talents they are today. I wanted to go to the source of the country's coaching talent and ask the man in charge all about the process. Everyone I meet over lunch with Frank is friendly and welcoming. There's an external lecturer from Brüssel Gladbach discussing structural issues related to youth players getting enough face-to-face -face coaching time the academy's leading psychologist is sitting a couple of seats further down. The conversation is fascinating, and it all revolves around Frank. A player with Joachim Löw at Freiburg, later his assistant at Fenerbahce, the former defender went on to be a head coach, mostly in Germany's regional leagues, but also with Germany's under-20s, before he became the coaching academy's chief instructor in 2008. His focus at the time of our meeting was on the optimization and reformation of the current coaching system. During our time together, there's a hint that Vormut misses the dugout, and almost a year later, I smiled when I read the news that he would be taking charge of Eredivisie side Heraculus Almelo for the 2018-19 season. The allure of the dugout is as great as the withdrawal that comes with prolonged time away from it. While no longer in charge of the academy, the majority of the information Frank told me stands today. Changes will inevitably be made, as is customary to keep up with football's unrelenting evolution, but the core focus of what Frank told me when I visited him remains. To coach in the top three divisions in Germany, you need to have the elite license, called the Fußballlehrer. The German language has a reputation for being harsh and unattractive, but it is prone to moments of literal beauty. Fußballlehrer translates into football teacher, 
And the more I spoke to Frank, the more I realised that is exactly what the Academy creates. Our main goal is to make conductors who don't have to be able to do everything, but should be aware of everything, Frank tells me. Only the B and C licences are handled at regional levels. Above that is the Elite Youth Licence, the A licence, and finally the Fußball Lehrer. The Elite Youth Licence is a step up from the usual B licence and is the first step into elite coaching in the eyes of the DFB, the German FA. Part of the reason the qualification is a must in Germany, unlike in other countries. There are subtle differences between the Fußballlehrer and the UEFA Pro license in England, and they start with the name. In England, the FA Level 5 is the somewhat formulaic title given to the UEFA Pro license coaching badge, whereas in Germany, the course name is far more literal. In England, according to the FA website, coaches require 245 hours of guided learning to complete the course. In Germany, you need nearly 800 hours. Why is there such a drastic difference? They are minimum requirements set by UEFA, says Frank. There are countries where this isn't as important, and they can't demand 800 hours because of finance or mentality. They're looking for a foundation. Here in Germany, typical German, if we want to do something, we'll do it right, Frank tells me. The thing about doing it right is that it forces quality to rise. The door is open to everyone, says Frank. But you have to get in, and once you're in, you have to be good. According to the English FA, the course takes 18 months to complete, but most are done in 12. In Germany, the course takes 10 months. To do the Fußballlehre, it costs approximately €11,000, travel not included. In England, FA coaching members can do the course for €10,165, non-members for €11,140. Statistics do not depict the entire outline, but it is intriguing to see that while things are perhaps slightly cheaper in England, there's an alarming gap in terms of learning hours. Every year in January, the closing date for applications, many coaches realise they are not good enough. The rigorous application process leaves no room for anything other than the highest quality. On average, 66 coaches apply for the Fußballlehrer every year. Half of that group attends a three-day assessment centre from Monday to Wednesday, the other half from Wednesday to Friday. The evaluation includes written, oral and practical tests. Eventually, a final list of 24 is selected for the course. Our task is not to say you can't do it. We can't do that, says Frank. We can't make them a personality if they don't have one. If you want that, go out and pay someone €200 an hour for five years and maybe in three years you'll have changed. Perhaps your attitude will be positive. Negative thinking people always see the glass half empty. Yes, that's true, they say. OK, then look at the glass half full. Their reply is, OK, but how? Reframe it. If you've lost and you're aggressive towards your team, you can lose them. Try reframing it and take something positive from it. And if you can internalise that, then maybe you'll come across differently. 
We give them tools. We don't know if it'll work, but at least they have a plan. We ask, how can they control this emotion? That's the role of our psychologist, or me as a coach. We can show them what they're like, but we can't change them. We are all personalities. Whether they fit outside in that role is another question, but someone who is quiet and shy also has a personality, and they know that. We don't tell someone who doesn't talk to talk. We just ask them how they're going to connect with the team. Find your way, Frank tells me. Frank says he has seen coaches be successful in the top flight, when that might not have looked likely at the start. Effective networking and the right words at the right time can make all the difference. Sometimes coaches don't have to be great to be successful. The system is complex. It has to be to deal with such a variety of personalities. But it is also fair to each candidate. And that is seen in the balanced weight of the marking. The aforementioned entry assessment tests are weighted as follows. 15% written, 25% oral and 40% practical. The remaining 20% is based on your experience. If you weren't a pro but had 10 years of experience in the 5th division of German football, that helps. But if you had no experience as a coach and used to be a pro, then that helps too. Previous coaching experience clearly has an edge though. You get points. If you were a player and a head coach, you get more points. If you work with professionals later, then it's always an advantage to have been one before. We're fair, Frank tells me. Former England midfielder Jermaine Genus wrote an exclusive piece for Yahoo Sports on how the outdated FA coaching system is to blame for the lack of English coaches. His argument read as follows. I'm not saying coaching has never crossed my mind, but it's worth pointing out that if I decided tomorrow that I wanted to be a manager and I started getting my badges through the FA, it would take me four and a half years to complete my training. While I have no doubt I'd get a great education, it's a long time. Too long. The question is, should an ex-footballer have to go through the same four-year course as the man on the street? There's an argument that people shouldn't get special treatment just because they're an ex-pro, but in comparison to someone who has never played the game professionally, I think there is a difference. You can't underestimate the value of experience, of playing in major tournaments and the Champions League of knowing what it's really like in the dressing room in those incredibly high-pressure situations, not to mention working with some of the world's top managers. Former Bayern Munich and Germany international Mehmet Scholl made similar comments in Germany, releasing a tirade against the so-called laptop coaches in an interview with Spiegel. They have never played at the top level and have no idea how a pro at the highest level works. They think about top-level football, but have never experienced it. It starts on the Fußballlehrer course. I've experienced it. The more I observe the candidates who qualify with the best scores, have the typical faces of those who are the best on the course, and have absorbed all the information, the more my hair stands on end. For them, tactics are the prime directive. They're laptop coaches. As a former player, Genus has strong reasons to believe there is a defining difference between former players and those who have never played the professional game. And he is right to suggest that the FA should address the way it approaches the opportunities afforded to talented young coaches in England. 
However, while certain aspects of having already experienced that world can be advantageous, being a former player doesn't guarantee you'll be a good head coach, and so it shouldn't guarantee you a better chance either. All experience is of value, but to prefer one over another would be a mistake, and that's why Frank's point system makes sense. After all, not all good journalists make good editors. Not all good politicians make good prime ministers or presidents. If there was one thing the last few years have shown quite drastically, it's that leadership and aspects of character associated with leading are more often assumed than developed. So why should former footballers get preferential treatment when it comes to coaching? We used to have that, but since I've been here, we've treated everyone the same, says Frank, and we've got good head coaches out of that. Julian Nagelsmann was not a professional. We've had good head coaches that have come out of education, psychology, and they know football really well. They might have played, which is always an advantage, but were never pros. They still know how the pro game works. This move away from former pros and former internationals, we've opened the door to people who are now in the Bundesliga. Stefan Effenberg has the pedigree, but was never a head coach, and then just became one. The Paderborn situation was unlucky, Frank says, referring to Effenberg's brief stint in charge of the then second division club, where he managed only two wins in 15 games, and saw his side beaten 7-1 by Borussia Dortmund in the second round of the German Cup. It didn't work, but the question is, does he have another chance now? Well, the chances look good. He has pedigree, can manage games, but has not much experience as a head coach. And you see that, unlike Christian Vons, who has experience with Bochum youth, Dortmund youth, and Augsburg youth. When he breaks through at the top one day, he won't have any problems. He learned the job from scratch. Julian Nagelsmann is clearly the example the academy aspires to. At 30, he has quickly made a name for himself at Hoffenheim. He saved the club from relegation and then led them into Europe for the start of the 2017-18 season, where they lost out in Champions League qualifying to eventual finalists Liverpool. The extent of Nagelsmann's talent was questioned when Hoffenheim's European debut ended with a whimper, but he secured qualification for Europe again. With another strong second half to the league season, impressively, this came after a poor start and having lost Sebastian Rudi and Niklas Süle to Bayern Munich the previous summer. During the summer of 2018, it was announced that Nagelsmann would become RB Leipzig's head coach for the 2019-20 season, and all this coming from the man who said on a Bild podcast that the Bundesliga was a player's game, not a coach's game. Frank has long had the feeling that Nagelsmann could become a top trainer. Once again, the German language reveals its hidden magic. The word trainer can be translated into coach, trainer, or football manager, but in Germany, a manager is something different. A trainer trains teams and coaches players. Management is part of his job, but the focus clearly lies on development. Looking at a coach like Nagelsmann, it is clear why Germany uses the word trainer for their head coaches. He was assistant head coach under Markus Gisdol and also won the league with the under-19s, so he has experience in youth football. Frank tells me. 
The reformation in 2000, when the DFB made youth academies a must, meant more and more head coaches started appearing in youth football. And really, the head coach of an under-19 Bundesliga team doesn't do anything differently to a Bundesliga head coach. It's just not as much in the public eye, with a different income, and the quality of the players isn't as good. But he does the same training, six, seven times a week, and pre-season. The big advantage is that the club can see their own talent developing. Nagelsmann was good, and presented himself well to those upstairs. Why get an external candidate when you know he's it, even if he is 29 years old? You send him away and then three years later, he isn't any better. He's already good. The move to internally promoting candidates prompted a new movement that started thanks to the success of Jurgen Klopp and then Thomas Tuchel. Both showed that not only was it possible to break away from the norm and give the reins to an internal candidate, but that it could also be a successful move. The appointment of Julian Nagelsmann made just as much sense, and his quality was clear to see long before. We were outside and I knowingly stepped in, I'm sure Nagelsmann will remember this, and confronted him with something, says Frank. I provoked him because, at the end of it, I don't want 24 friends, but 24 fully educated coaches. I'm sure he does the same in Hoffenheim, but with a different type of confidence and language. He told a player, you have to attack the ball, so the man behind you can't have the ball played to him. I said, Jule, how can he see? He hasn't got eyes in the back of his head. If he moves out of the shadows, how am I supposed to know? That's when he realised the theory is correct, but in practice, it didn't work. There wasn't much I could give him, but there were a few moments. Be careful. You're working with grown pros. In Hoffenheim, things are probably calm with the lads, young lads who play nice football and will give their all for him. But what if he goes to another club, say Dortmund? Then you're working with different types of players. Then a Mats Hummels, who isn't there anymore, would say, What are you doing here? It's working at Hoffenheim. Taking the right job at the right time is important. Nagelsmann's relatively fast rise has made him a wanted man. But Vormuth's words about future jobs seem pertinent considering the number of factors that play a role in a coach's success. It's exactly why Nagelsmann's move to RB Leipzig, another team with a group of hungry young players, makes a lot of sense for the young head coach. To get into a position to take the right opportunities when they arrive, you have to make the Fußballlehrer course. In the end, only 24 coaches are accepted onto the programme, each with a mix of knowledge backgrounds. Not all stem from performance bases, not all are former pros. Applications are always balanced to make sure one group doesn't outweigh another. Before the assumption creeps in that those coaching the coaches are free from criticism, Frank tells me the academy had a two-and-a-half-year study done on the course to make sure what they were coaching the coaches was relevant and nothing was missing. The profile of the job is only as good as the profile of the education on offer, he says. On the Fußballlehrer course, two psychologists, a doctor of sports medicine, the top fitness coach in the country, who is also Germany's under-21 fitness coach and the coach of all other fitness coaches in youth DFB teams, a nutritional coach and the chief instructor make sure of the group's progress. The 10-month long course is broken down as follows. The candidates spend three days a week, Mondays to Wednesdays, for 22 weeks at the academy. 
12 weeks are then spent on work experience and 6 weeks are spent studying from home. Of the 22 weeks at the academy, 19 are spent on coaching the coaches, 3 are spent testing them. For the 2016 class, the 12 weeks of work experience were split, with one week at the European Under-19 Championship, one week of voice training, eight weeks at a Bundesliga club, and two weeks at an association. Foreign internships in countries such as the Netherlands, Switzerland, and Austria are also becoming a feature of the course. Wherever the coaches go, it adds up to 10 months of intense learning and development. That all starts in June, when candidates are welcomed and the course subjects are introduced. This isn't all smiles and photographs, though. It is often at this stage that Frank and his team can get the best feel for what kind of raw characteristics lie inside their coaches. We have to have them raw at the start, says Frank. Before Marcus Gisdol even had time to change, we had him presenting. Five minutes in an eight-man group. We filmed all of it, as we always do. We've had a former player stand up and say nothing. They're used to having to answer questions, not saying something themselves. We might say, tell us what you thought of the Bundesliga season last year and what would you bear in mind? I can recognise whether they have structure. You'll notice that some make loads of notes and then just talk without structure. You need an introduction, a core argument and a finish. The first sentence is the most important. Frank then went on to outline how the course starts with analysis of top-level football. We and the English were always at these events, but they were there to film for their team, not for their coaching students. We were the first that filmed for our coaching course. In the Czech Republic recently, there were 12 different countries observing for their pro license. Word got around what we do here, Frank said. The work being done at the academy has been the subject of many an article. The ever-innovative AZ Alkmaar visited after a Dutch journalist wrote a piece on the academy. While the rest of the world was obsessed with scouting their opposition or cultivating their own talent, they forgot to coach the coaches. That has all changed now. Analysis work is done in groups of three, said Frank. You cut the film, put it into a PowerPoint, and then present and get feedback. It's all about their knowledge. Everything is learned from scratch, so that when you're a head coach, you know what problems the video analysis has. We don't tell them what to do, we just remind them of a few things. It's important not to judge straight away. Everything in football is right. You just have to justify it. One of the tasks coaches face is to write what football is on an A4 page. They don't believe it is possible. They arrive with huge knowledge, but leave with it structured. Work is also done on communication for television or print media, which Frank interestingly says he wants to increase during the reforms. Notably, the two opening modules for the class of June 2018 were public relations and presenting. Head coaches practice press conferences, playing different roles, such as their first team talk to a new team, and answering difficult questions. We've had a few sweating in those seats, Frank says with a smile. By August, the preparation for pre-season begins, parallel to the current season. Then in September, the foundation of knowledge is taught. This includes the technical and tactical part of the game, as well as the method and rules. At the same time comes the psychology, which includes educational and communication psychology. In other words, how do I present? Then the physiology of football, 
training, sports medicine, nutrition. In the end, the weekly plan can look something like this. Monday, psychology, five classes. Fusballera, six classes, two practical evenings with a demo group. 11 exercises, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Tuesday, Fusballera, seven classes, four practical, morning together, evenings with a demo group, under 19s of the local team. Physiology, five classes. 11 exercises, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Wednesday, Fusballera, five classes, rules and nutrition, physiology, 11 exercises, 8 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. We rarely have frontal classes. We progress through the knowledge of the group. We give them tasks in groups of three. They do it and then present their ideas, and all I do is fill in the gaps as the lecturer. They always ask because of my experience of over 20 years in coaching at under-20 international level, but I say, tell me your thoughts first. Then I fill in the gaps and say how I would do it, Frank tells me. Outside of the classroom, each coach gets a theme and 30 minutes with a demo group or a local team, three coaches per team. One coach records for content, one for behaviour, and the rest of the coaches watch. The next day, the coach is put on the hot seat and questioned about the session. Every coach on the course is on the hot seat seven times, a number Frank wishes was higher, and each coach can observe and ask questions of all the other coaches during the 161 hot seats. The learning is constant. It's not just about the offside line, but how it affects the game. Making the space bigger means we don't get to make the tackles. There are different learning situations and different ways for them to show how their task influences the game, Frank tells me. After that, a full 90-minute session follows, with further opportunity for self-reflection and feedback. Then other groups present what you worked on, forcing coaches to know their subject matter inside out. Then Frank shadows coaches during exercises that cover all topics of football, from defensive behaviour to counter-attacking. Every coach gets the chance to reflect on his work and give feedback on the work of other coaches. I talk to him during the exercise, says Frank. I might say, the player isn't doing what you just asked him. He replies, I know, he wasn't listening. He wasn't listening, or you didn't explain it to him properly, I ask. Well, should I bring the group together then? Well, then you lose the rhythm, so maybe later... It's this kind of interaction that Frank wants more of at lower levels of the coaching pyramid. If you do the Fußballlehrer, then you've got a fantastic education, but up until the A licence, it's still a bit thin. Here we are working with them for 10 months, and they come in and say, Frank, you mentioned something last week, could we chat about it? I have the time. For the A licence, you're only around for three weeks. That's what I'm changing now. I want to keep improving the teaching. There's a discrepancy between what I have and what I imagined. The course is only improved through the teachers. Viel Masse, wenig Klasse, Frank says, playing on the rhyme between the German words Masse, mass, and Klasse, class. It translates to lots of coaches, not much class. I have to make more Klasse from the Masse, he adds with a grin. There are 24 coaches and we have a group coaching approach but we only ever see the individual coach. The education is individual, even in groups, because a head coach is alone at the end of it all, Frank tells me.
One of the tasks that intrigued me the most was the concept of taking over a team in October. Frank and his team stage a scenario in which four Bundesliga teams in the top flight and the second division have a problem and have called to prepare the head coach for the interview. Each club gets six head coaches preparing as if they were about to get the chance to take over the reins. Parallel to their normal work, three weeks long, they get games of their respective teams, opt to data and can use the internet. At the end of the three weeks, they have an imaginary job interview. The process starts in October, they watch games for three weeks, and at the start of November, they begin their preparation. In February, they have five lessons to show their preparation, how they would have done the interview, and how they would have trained the team up until Christmas. We just had Schalke. The day after tomorrow, we have Karlsruhe SC. They then take these experiences forward for preparation of real jobs. Valerian Ishmael later told me SDFC Nuremberg were impressed with him because they recognised he had done his homework. It was more than just his knowledge. It was how he had learned to give the feeling he was the perfect man for the job. His preparation had been spot on. Frank then joked that half a year later the students would be thrown out of their coaching jobs because others had no idea about football. While some of this is Frank's humour, it was also a firm reminder of the striking reality these coaches were being prepared for. Ishmael only lasted 14 games at Nuremberg before being dismissed. In December, the focus on the individual coach is intensified. Work is done in pairs to figure out where any gaps might be. By this stage, the coaches are pretty much a Fußballlehrer. In the new year, repetition is key to retaining the knowledge originally taught at the beginning of the course. The presence of guest speakers plays a key role at this time of the course. We work through our opinion first, and then have an external speaker come in and give us their thoughts, not the other way around. Then everyone knows what we're doing, and then we can bring in someone from outside. Volker Finker, the former head coach of Cameroon and Freiburg, where he holds a record for 16 years in charge, was due to arrive the day after I met Frank to talk about international coaching. Former course members such as ex-Hamburg and current FC Köln head coach Marcus Gisdol call in on Skype to give 20-minute sessions. Even former Arsenal head coach Arsene Wenger made the trip out once. After an hour, I said, you told me you only had half an hour. He could have talked for three hours. He was in his element, Frank said with a smile. There's a combination of deductive and inductive learning, both of which are paramount to the role of any coach. Sometimes coaches need to tell a player what to do, other times they need to ask to see how far the player has come. The inductive aspect is focused on the participants. We want their knowledge, Frank tells me. The task is set. For example, what makes good pressing? The group works together and then presents it. The presentation in the first week is to test their methods and Frank focuses on content and behaviour. You're talking to the team about playing calmly, but your hands are everywhere. How is that supposed to work? Your body language and your words don't match, and then they don't feel right. That's what we explain. We let them work. Whoever teaches, learns. If you explain something, you realise whether you've understood it or not. Consistently presenting helps that, and the course lives off exchanges. Frank's favourite part of the course is the mirroring to show them what they actually are, not what they see. Who am I? Where am I going? We constantly ask these questions. The point of the mirror is to get them out of a loop. 
You were a player and heard what a head coach said. Then you're a head coach and you do exactly what your coach did. Breaking that circle is what we focus on here. We had a head coach say once, I coached wrong for 15 years. I say, no, you trained differently. So you can either carry on coaching as before or take something from here, from the entire group. He took that on board and changed. From the middle of February until the middle of March, it's exam time. We don't learn for tests, but for life, says Frank with a grin. There are three module tests in all subjects, but each test only counts 5.5% towards the final grade. These are in the standard question and answer style and are done to make students learn during the course. Julian Nagelsmann was asked when he was made head coach how he managed to balance his coaching course while managing a Bundesliga team. Frank said he had no problem because he had done the modules. He already had the knowledge. The final tests at the end are where students have to apply their knowledge. There is a three-hour written test, a one-hour oral, one ten-minute presentation of their football philosophy, and then there are 45 minutes of questions from lecturers, doctors, other coaches, and the psychologist. Then they are handed a topic to work with and have to complete a 30-minute practical with their demo group. Their coursework is their football philosophy, training philosophy, leadership, and organization in 12 to 15 pages, Frank tells me. It's a workbook, and it remains a reference point. What I have in my head is now in book form. This is how coaches can go from just making players better to making players realize why they're better. By the end of it, the coaches have gone through an eight-level structure of competence development. It starts with subject competence, but they also have to be able to transmit this knowledge, which takes them to the second level, imparting competence. None of that makes any difference if they can't speak properly, so speech competence is also there. When speaking, social competence is pivotal, so empathy, authority, identity and character are studied. Logically, leadership competence is also included, as well as media competence. There's also an I competence, who are you? And network competence, what happens if you're out of the loop and you need to make some calls? You need that network. That gives the 24 coaches on the course a start. As phenomenal a first step as this is, it is often not enough for a coach to survive. In the first half of the 2016-17 Bundesliga season, a record seven head coaches lost their jobs. In the 2017-18 season, five of the nine coaching changes were made before January. Was this due to increased attention and expectation on the Bundesliga and its head coaches, or just part of football? It's not pressure, but what I, as the recipient of that pressure, do, Frank says. It appears that many in leading positions at clubs don't have the patience or the strength for that to stand next to someone. They seek the easiest way, and that's change, but it doesn't guarantee you anything. But you can say afterwards that you tried everything. I always find it amusing when sporting directors say this was our ideal candidate on the first day, and then half a year later say, we're sorry it didn't work out. Then you also have to question the person who brought him in. Sporting directors should be in place to retain that philosophy for the club, and then they should hire a head coach that fits the club, Frank tells me. Stuart Webber is a strong example of a sporting director in England helping mould philosophies at clubs either short of one or unsure how to develop an already existing one. 
As director of football operations at Huddersfield Town, Weber played a huge role in bringing David Wagner to the club at a time when Weber believed the club was in need of cultural change. Weber then moved to Norwich City, where he was responsible in bringing over Daniel Farker, another Borussia Dortmund youth coach. In both cases, Weber identified a need for philosophical change at club level and then made the appointment that gave the club the best chance to succeed in doing so. Both Wagner and Farker have changed the culture at their respective clubs, which is pivotal at a time when player transfers have become a much harder science. You can't just buy players, Frank continues. You have to develop them. Using this short life cycle, you run into the danger of a player arriving, giving him three days, and if he doesn't work, you get the next one. They can play football, though. They weren't bought for millions for no reason, so I have to approach players in a way that makes them perform. And if he can't perform, then I have to question my scouting team. That's why I say, when a player cannot perform at a club, it's 90% the fault of the head coach, because he has to approach him in a way that makes him work. Of course, there will be cases where the coach says, I don't get on with him, and yet he's still bored then he can't be blamed. Klaus Alofs and Thomas Schaaf worked together for years at Werder Bremen and they only ever bought players if they both agreed. I, as head coach, have to do something to make sure the player is happy, but then he has to perform and push himself. And if he doesn't do that, then I didn't do my homework beforehand. I have to know if he's someone who can perform under pressure. Lots of people are involved in a player's success. Frank tells me. Success for one can make it harder for another, and there is a feeling in Germany that with the arrival of Nagelsmann and Schalke's Domenico Tedesco, a new mindset is entering the German game. The phase that began with Klopp has been reignited as young head coaches continue to get their chance at the top, while former heroes watch on. But is the narrative of the day really its reality? It isn't harder because of coaches like Nagelsmann, but because of the high number of head coaches who have already worked and built a reputation. A while ago, there were 20 head coaches for 15 spots. The door is bigger now because of our coaching work here and in youth academies. Before, what you achieved or whether you were a former pro gave you a chance. Valerian Ishmael, Joe Zinbauer, Nagelsmann, Klopp, Tuchel, there's a new door. There are more applicants because more people can show their experience. It will be harder for everyone to get in now, Frank tells me. Of the seven head coaches sacked in the first half of the 2016-17 Bundesliga season, three internal coaches ended up being their replacements, while Torsten Frings jumped clubs to jump roles, moving from the staff of Werder Bremen to head coach at Darmstadt, where he spent almost a year. By January 2017, 12 of the then 18 Bundesliga teams had promoted a head coach internally. Ingolstadt, one of the two sides relegated that season, appointed former second-team head coach Stefan Leitl, who was, after 36 matches in charge, relieved of his duties not long after the start of the 2018-19 season. And four more internal appointments were made at the Bundesliga clubs in the 2017-18 season. In the 2016-17 season, both Craig Shakespeare at Leicester City and Mike Phelan at Hull City became head coaches after being appointed internally. Neither lasted more than four months. In the 2014-15 season, 
Caretaker head coach Chris Ramsey signed a three-year deal to become Queen's Park Rangers head coach. Six months later, he was sacked. The trend is clear. English football has been hesitant towards making such decisions. And when they have made them, they've either been too rash or the coaches haven't been given enough time. Perhaps it's less a case of more head coaches than before, but rather more openness to the idea of members of the coaching staff becoming head coaches. It's about trusting someone to lead a team, not just be part of one. Such is the pressure in the Premier League that it takes a brave man to make this decision. Sam Allardyce has been a head coach of seven different Premier League clubs over the years. Mark Hughes has coached six Premier League teams. Alan Pardew, five, and David Moyes, four. By the end of the 2017-18 season, those four men had managed nine of 20 teams in the Premier League. At the end of the same season in Germany, eight of the then-employed coaches had managed 13 of the then-top-flight teams. Managerial merry-go-rounds are normal in many countries, Germany included, but it seems quite astonishing that nearly half of the Premier League had been shared between just four men. I know the fear, Frank tells me. We had it years ago. The person in charge picked a young head coach. It didn't work. And then they looked bad in the press, and then the club is relegated or loses sponsorship money. I'm afraid, so I bring in a name. Even if the name isn't great, it's a name. He doesn't work, but you tried. You brought in a name. You tried everything. With Thomas Tuchel at Mainz, the sporting director Christian Heidel said, I'm convinced by him. Thankfully, it worked. He was successful. But then others began to realise, we could get a young coach too. So Stuttgart's sporting director says, we'll take Hannes Wolf. He has won three titles in youth football in Germany. He's good. But take Hannes Wolf to Hamburg. He has those upstairs. They would tear him apart. It has to fit. Ironically, months later, Hannes Wolf was announced as the new head coach of Hamburg, near the end of October 2018. While I didn't doubt the decision by Wolf to get back into the dugout, I was surprised that he chose to do so at Hamburg, for exactly the reason Frank had told me, months before his invented example became reality. After all, Christian Titz, the coach removed in order to be replaced by Wolf, had restored some sentiment of order to the club and had given young players a chance. After only 11 games of the new season, though, and with Hamburg just two points off first, Titz was gone. It was time for a new head coach. I think young German head coaches are given more of a chance now because of a change in attitude, because of Tuchel and experiments with successful young managers. It started with Klopp, says Frank. In his fantastic book Legacy, about the All Blacks, New Zealand's dominant rugby union team, James Kerr uses Will Hogg's four stages for organisational change to emphasise that all levels of change must occur, otherwise the likelihood of true change is heavily reduced. Kerr listed them as follows. A case for change. A compelling picture of the future. A sustained capability to change. And a credible plan to execute. Whether Hamburg had a case for change when they decided to sack Tits and appoint Wolf remains unclear to most. But Germany certainly had one at the start of the millennium when the performance of their national team collapsed. Their plan for the future was to get back to the top of the pile. And, after a sustained effort of change, they won the World Cup in 2014. 
The plan to execute was reflected in Germany's implementation of academies, out of which a generation of highly intelligent players, Generation Y, players who ask why they're doing something rather than just doing it, coached by smarter, better educated coaches, was born. After the disappointment at the 2018 World Cup, it will be interesting to see whether Germany can deliver another necessary plan for change and be as successful as before. Ever since the appointment of Jurgen Klopp at Mainz proved a triumph, other clubs in Germany realised that appointing an internal or slightly younger candidate was possible. Many clubs took a collective stance against external pressure to appoint a name and in doing so changed the cultural approach to coaching appointments. Eddie Howe's success at Bournemouth could have been that moment for English football. Instead, the Premier League kept growing, kept signing bigger talents and kept appearing on television screens in the most rural bars in Vietnam. There is a price to pay for it all. What is important about Klopp's appointment was that the gamble paid off. There is certainly a case to be made that had Klopp not been successful at Mainz, Germany's coaching landscape might look a little different now. Two consecutive Bundesliga titles and a German cup at Borussia Dortmund saw his coaching and identity reach another level. By the time he had guided Liverpool to the Champions League final in 2018, Klopp had become so much more than a man who changed a coaching culture in Germany. He had become one of the best in the game, and partly because he grew along with the players he developed. As Melissa Reddy points out in her marvellously in-depth article for Joe titled From Hong Kong to Kiev, At the End of the Storm, There's a Golden Sky, Klopp's story is about hugs, fist pumps and rants, but should also be about the composed leader who is able to read the room and never ducks a big call. An unremarkable player, but always a remarkable character, Klopp has become the modern symbol for German coaching, and yet in many ways, he isn't very German. Klopp fits in any team because of his incredible connection to players, Frank says. Although some players came to me when I was Germany under-20 coach and said they sometimes find his positivity frustrating. Why? They'd say because he praises me to the heavens, but I don't play. Another example of his positivity is when he told me about a player with an amazing left foot. I call him up and then think, this must be the brother. He exaggerates sometimes about how much of a special character this player is, and then he arrives and he's just another player. I love Klopp's positivity, but in reality it's easy to understand why misunderstandings happen. That helps players though, and I think it's a good quality, because it's better to see the positive over the negative. We Germans often see the negatives before we even talk about what was good. Kloppo isn't German in that respect. He's always positive. So many great people have been working in English football for years. Some of their stories were brilliantly and poignantly told in Michael Calvin's Living on the Volcano. And yet, too many never get the chance to step out of the shadows, and when they do, they are often burdened with unrealistic expectation. There was an interesting discussion on BT Sports Score at the start of December 2017, in which Jermaine Genus, John Hartson, Tim Sherwood, Michael Owen, Chris Sutton and Robbie Savage discussed who is blocking the path for young managers. Remarkably, 
Owen said that the last thing he'd think of doing would be to get his coaching badges because the only job he'd get would be in the National League. Owen added he'd have a better chance of being successful at Premier League level than at non-league level because he doesn't know the players or the systems at that level. While Owen's point that the FA isn't giving opportunities to English coaches is in some respects understandable, the line of argument is questionable. Doing your badges or being a well-known ex-player shouldn't automatically guarantee you a job at the highest level. And if it does, then there's something wrong with the system. Young English coaches aren't getting opportunities in part because club boards want to appoint a name. And that often happens to be a successful foreign coach. This is largely because the Premier League wants to cultivate its status as the one with all the stars and considers head coaches to be part of that. For that to change, there needs to be a cultural shift in English coaching, one that starts by focusing on making the right appointment for the club rather than deciding based on the aforementioned reasons. In many ways, Arsenal's decision to appoint Unai Emery is a perfect example. Emery is undoubtedly a successful and experienced head coach, but is he the right coach for Arsenal? Mikel Arteta appeared to be a more appropriate coach for the Gunners, one with all the right attributes. A former Arsenal player who understands the club and its culture, and a man who has played and worked in the Premier League, most recently as a coach with Pep Guardiola's remarkable title-winning Manchester City side. Of course, this doesn't guarantee success. Emery may well work out as Arsenal head coach. But Arsenal's decision not to make a strong and brave transition into a new era of coaching after Arsene Wenger is an opportunity missed. West Bromwich Albion eventually appointed the right man for the club. After nearly lifting the club clear of what looked like certain relegation at the end of the 2017-18 season, Darren Moore went from being interim coach to the man in charge permanently. Whether the club would have made such a bold decision had they retained their Premier League status is unknown, but Moore's appointment is no less significant. In the end, results elsewhere ensured the Baggies dropped down to the Championship, but Moore picked up 11 points in his six games in charge, a run that saw West Brom beat Manchester United and Tottenham Hotspur and draw with Liverpool. A former West Brom player, Moore had been working as a youth coach at the club since 2012, gradually working his way up. Brought on as a first-team assistant to Alan Pardew, Moore was then handed the job on an interim basis when Pardew was sacked. Six games, as impressive as they were, shouldn't be the only aspects of an assessment of Moore's suitability. This is a man who knows and has respect for all levels of the club, Having won Premier League Manager of the Month for April 2018, Moore shared his success by taking a photo with 118 staff members. This is a man who used to play for the club and understands the community in which it is based. This is a man who is qualified, capable and perfectly suited to the club in question. His appointment by no means guarantees success, but it shows greater consideration of all the factors that can lead to it. By me sitting here in the role I've got, it's an inspiration to all young British coaches, Moore said after his permanent appointment. And hopefully the role today inspires them the right way from grassroots football right in the professional game. And if it does do that to individuals, then I'm extremely proud. 
Moore's appointment is a chance for West Brom and English football to start changing coaching culture to include opportunity for young and internal coaches. For that cultural change to take root, Moore will have to be successful. There's no escaping that without proof on the pitch, the decision to choose a younger, lesser-known coach is less likely to become part of the thought process. The hope is he's given time to do so, but in England, time appears a lost commodity. When Leeds United sacked 40-year-old Paul Heckingbottom, he had coached just 16 games. Of the club's last eight head coaches, only one has lasted a whole season. They are numbers to support the statement that clubs' approaches to head coaches are often reckless, as well as proof that the recruitment process of head coaches at some English clubs is in need of work. Moore's appointment offers a unique opportunity, though, one far more important than recognition of unknown coaches. It's a chance to change the racial discrimination of black, Asian and minority ethnic coaches in England. As Jonathan Liu, the Independent's brilliant chief sports writer, wrote in a frighteningly true article, since 2000, the proportion of black footballers playing for England has risen, but while 25% of white players have been given a managerial job since retirement, that drops to just 10% for black players. Just 7% of the current Premier League and Football League managers are BAME. Sol Campbell, who has a UEFA Pro license and has gained experience at club and international level, waited a long time before being given a chance. At the start of December 2018, the side bottom of League 2, at that stage the lowest-ranked full-time professional team in England, Macclesfield Town, appointed Campbell head coach. While individual beliefs vary, social prejudices continue to be clearly reflected in all manner of workplaces, football included. White head coaches get more chances than BAME head coaches. Like Chris Hewton at Brighton and Hove Albion, Moore's appointment is a step in the right direction, but BAME head coaches remain all too rare a sight. In the spring of 2018, what did suddenly become a familiar sight in Britain was white former professionals getting head coaching jobs. In April 2018, Stephen Gerrard, 38, was announced as the new head coach of Rangers, not long after, former England teammate Frank Lampard, 39, was made head coach of Derby County. That spring also saw Joey Barton, 35, announced as Fleetwood Town head coach. Imagine Arsene Wenger leaves Arsenal and they give the job to an unknown under-19 coach from Manchester City who has done great work, says Frank. Firstly, the mentality of others is, what's this? We're used to getting the best. The players will say, what has this young devil got to tell us? You have to change the mentality. Changing the mentality means giving coaches like Gerrard, Lampard or Barton a chance. Admittedly, their appointments aren't free of some troubling considerations when it comes to how qualified they are. Lampard has coached at youth level, albeit part-time, but, as revealed in an interview with The Guardian in May 2018, he would only start with a pro license in September 2018. Barton has his UEFA A license, but, like Lampard, not his pro license. Gerard perhaps has the best experience to qualifications ratio and stands perhaps the best chance. In an interview with The Guardian five months before his appointment, the former Liverpool captain said he had aged two years in six months during his time as head coach of Liverpool's under-18s. 
The former midfielder spoke openly about the benefits of learning the trade away from the cameras and how the time will definitely prepare him for wherever he ends up. For all the benefits of being Steven Gerrard, the former Liverpool midfielder is determined to do it the right way. Telling The Guardian, I'm not sitting here thinking I've done it for five months, so bring the job interviews on. In six months or a year or two years' time, there might be an opportunity where I think I'm much better prepared than I was five months ago. The MK Don's job, for example, which came up just after I had finished playing, was like a smack in the face. There was no way I was ready to lead a club or a team. Am I closer to that now? Of course, but I am happy where I am right now. In an article for The Times at the end of May 2018, Oliver Kay, the paper's chief football correspondent, spoke to England's youngest UEFA Pro licence coach. Kevin Nicholson, 32, told Kay there was something like 335 Pro licence coaches who had come through the FA scheme. This number makes the appointments of Gerrard, Lampard and Barton, none of whom had the Pro licence, England's version of Germany's Fußballlehrer, at the time of their appointments, all the more difficult to swallow. It's not like Germany, where Nagelsmann got the Hoffenheim job at 28 and Tedesco got the Schalke job at 31, Nicholson told Kay. But all we can do as young coaches is keep working and hope that our time will come. I hope it does. I think it would benefit our whole game. And that's the truth. Whether it's Nicholson, Gerrard or Lampard, every young new head coach has a chance to make a positive impact on the game. Frank believes there are good coaches in England, but that the game lacks trust in them. Perhaps Gerrard, now head coach of Rangers in Scotland, will be one to gain enough trust. Perhaps Lampard will get enough time at Derby to grow. Perhaps Barton will prove the critics wrong. But their potential, and the potential of every young head coach out there, is important for English football to acknowledge. The hope is if that any of the aforementioned coaches are successful, it engenders wider trust in younger coaches, partly made possible by reviewing the experience criteria and not a rush to appoint former players. For cultural coaching change to work fully, it has to be about the ability of the individual, not the name in the headlines. There's no denying that Jurgen Klopp's appointment at Mainz changed German coaching and that when he was made head coach at Borussia Dortmund, it was an appointment with a wider effect on German football. The summer after England's youth teams won the Under-20 and Under-17 World Cups, as well as the Under-19 UEFA Championship and the Tolon Tournament, English coaching also had a chance to make a perfectly timed cultural shift in its approach to managerial appointments, especially after the success Gareth Southgate had with England at the 2018 World Cup. It's time to change the mentality. In Germany, through the youth academies, we've got more and more young players, Frank tells me. The Bundesliga has grown younger through these talents, and these talents know the type of head coaches who explain football to them, who don't just say, do that, but talk to them. The coaches fell in with these talents, and the players don't expect now for them to be old school and say, out we go, or run. They expect to be told how to run, and if it doesn't work, don't worry, we'll talk about it later. I have a video analysis we can look at. We'll get you there. It's a question of trust. If coaching courses weren't great in England, then you can coach internally at your own club. Perhaps that's something England needs to do more of. We do that. I don't think we're better or worse than the French, Dutch, Swiss or English. 
We aren't better, Frank says. Everyone has their own way. German head coaches know the system, and through the work they do in youth football, they know the system better. They speak the language. They know our philosophy. If I go to England and Italy and get a head coach, I don't know them. They have a language problem. You saw it with Pep Guardiola and even Carlo Ancelotti. They have a brilliant team, but the language problem is there. I was with Jochen Löw at Fenerbahce, and what we said at the end of it was that we weren't connecting to the players' souls, Frank tells me. Discussing the souls of modern footballers is murky water, but is the heart of a good football head coach any easier to understand? As of May 2017, Frank Vormuth has coached 241 students on the Fußballlehrer course since he took over. If anyone knows what makes a good head coach, he does. I'm a very structured person. I orientate myself around the eight levels of competence, minus the networking, because that comes later. Then it depends where I am head coach. Sometimes the president of a club calls and says, I need a new head coach. And I always ask, what is the job description? What does the team look like? They ask why. I have to know. Do I need a likable character that connects with people, where knowledge is of less importance? Then I would recommend him to Real Madrid. He has to handle people. Whether Zinedine Zidane would be a good head coach in Buxtehude, a small town in the north near Hamburg, I don't know. Is he a teaching coach, or can he only work with finished products? I have to know that. That's why I can't say, this is a good head coach. He has to be good in all seven of the competence areas. But even then, it doesn't guarantee he'll fit in the team. A good head coach depends on the job he takes, the team he has. Then I can see if he can work with the team, if he can transfer information, if he has an idea. He might still lose, but he's still a good coach. The academy reformations on Frank's mind when we meet will mean changes especially the addition of this sparkly new performance centre in Frankfurt, due to be completed by 2021. With a potential estimated cost of 150 million euros, the new academy will be the most expensive investment in the history of the association. It will heavily incorporate the modern digital aspects of football development. From big data to 360-degree visuals, the Silicon Valley of football, as Germany team manager Oliver Bierhoff has suggested it should be, is a prime example of how Germany are trying to stay ahead. After the team's performance in Russia, one might suggest it's time for Germany to catch up again. The focal point of the academy will be a think tank. Launched at the beginning of 2018, the project is designed to be a space where innovative ideas surrounding sports science, psychology and fitness can be discussed. In an interview with Training Ground Guru in July 2018, Dr. Thomas Hauser, the head of the project, revealed a number of intriguing insights into the think tank, a project that apparently had been eight years in the making. From the coaching perspective, the most important message was the integration of the coaches. We hope to find answers to support the coaches. They say, we want to coach in an individual way. If you want to do this, you need to understand the biology of an organism. That is not part of the coaching education program, Hauser said. Given the breadth of the programme, it's impressive to think the DFB is thinking of even more ways to equip their coaches. One look at Germany's disastrous 2018 World Cup performance, more on that later, suggests that perhaps now is the right time to seek more innovation. England's 2018 World Cup was a success, and that is also down to the work being done at the country's Central Academy, St George's Park. 
Hauser said that they had visited England's academy, admitting even though they didn't have a think tank the same way the DFB does, that the English were much further on with the idea of an academy. Creating space to think and discuss in an environment as stubborn and self-confident as football isn't easy, particularly at the highest level. So the DFB's decision to develop and promote the idea of such a project is positive. It's like a playground sometimes. We can try things out, Hauser told training ground guru. Sometimes we will get results and sometimes we won't. However, I heard Hauser speak at the 2018 Internationale Trainer Congress, the ITK, a congress for head coaches from all over the world, and the positivity of the project was lost somewhere behind another wave of DFB business talk. This was a room full of more than 1,000 head coaches who needed convincing that the think tank was going to benefit them, not a barrage of graphics and neat slogans. Phrases such as, the future doesn't just arrive, it's made by us all, and the Harvard of football were used, and an artist's impression of how the new academy would look was displayed. The idea was that the academy would be an environment specifically designed to move you into certain spaces and engage with different people. The way it was depicted mimicked the concept of the movie Inside Out, in which personifications of five basic emotions influence the behaviour of a little girl, Riley, from a console within her mind. However, unlike the award-winning animated film, this presentation couldn't keep the attention of the thousand-odd coaches in the Congress Hall. The startling heat of the summer might have played a role, but quite a few eyes started to close during Hauser's lecture. The hope is that the concept works out better than the delivery. In a sport as viciously competitive as football, creating space in which to think and sometimes fail is pivotal. After all, the exchange and development of different opinions is at the heart of human growth, as long as it's done correctly. The sentiment of Willy Brandt, the former German Chancellor and Nobel Peace Prize winner, sums it up perfectly. It often takes more courage to change one's opinion than to keep it. At the highest level and on top of an already exchange-rich coaching program, it seems German football is trying to do just that. France started with this type of academy with Clairefontaine, Frank tells me. Spain were always top and we were always second best when we play them. They work with more game structure, whereas we're a bit Dutch and focus on passing. Then we look at the Dutch and see they're only focused on positional play, and that's not right. We always compare with outside and are still not happy with our schooling. Typical German, we can never be happy, Frank says with a smile. We are constantly looking to improve. It's a positive aspect, but life has two lanes, and there is also a negative. We have a lot of burnouts. The French don't have as many or as much success, but they live well. They drink a glass of red, eat white bread, and don't get fat. I love that laissez-faire attitude. Okay, so you arrive a little late, but life goes on. What we do is somewhat extreme. I think a little bit of French wouldn't go amiss, Frank tells me. Perhaps that was why France won the 2018 World Cup. In a remarkable statement on the Bavarian radio station Bayerischer Rundfunk in December 2017, Mehmet Scholl said the coaching course was 11 months of brainwashing. The 47-year-old added that the Tedescos and Wolves have sprung up out of nowhere and that German football will have a severe case of the blues in the future. Perhaps Scholl's most damning statement regarding the new coaching generation was that they weren't really interested in the people or the footballers anymore.
Scholl, who is a qualified coach but hasn't had a coaching job since working with Bayern Munich's youth teams in 2013, feels the players are being coached by robots to be robots. The kids have to pass. They can't dribble anymore. They aren't getting the right advice why a pass or tackle didn't work. Instead, they can fart 18 systems. The comments caused a stir in the media and from the coaches at whom the comments were directed. Hannes Wolf, then Stuttgart's head coach, responded by saying, I like him a lot, his creativity, his humour, but for him as a former player to question coaches who weren't players is borderline. And I think he knows that. In an interview with the Süddeutsche Zeitung, Schalke head coach Domenico Tedesco dismissed the idea that the coaching course brainwashed its students. It's not that at all from my perspective, he said. Everything in football is presented and discussed. Possession, long balls, pressing and sitting deep. It's like a buffet with meat, fish, salad and everything. As a head coach, I go up and serve myself. Nothing is compulsory there. Frank Wolmuth told Bilt he felt Scholl's comments had no basis in fact and that he only saw a cry for help from someone who is disenchanted. But it was Jürgen Klopp's words that resonated the most. Speaking to German TV station ZDF in January 2018, Klopp said, I don't know what to say, really. I like Mehmet Scholl. I don't know him that well, but I liked him a lot as a player, and we've met here and there. He really is a nice guy. Obviously, he thinks a lot about football, and somewhere there's always a bit of truth in the things he perhaps says, but it's not the truth. All the young head coaches who have come through have enjoyed a top level of education. Compared to earlier, a Hannes Wolf has been in charge of a football team for seven years before he got a job in the Bundesliga. Not just anyone, but at the top level, just in youth football. Domenico Tedesco did the same. Julian Nagelsmann did the same. They didn't just get the job overnight. If former pros were willing to go down this road and not coach the big game straight from the start, or say they have to train at a certain level or get a job at a Bundesliga club as their first job, if they were ready to start the job at a healthy level and learn the job, because you have to learn it, because the job has nothing to do with being a pro, you have to lead a team, not play in one. And that's a huge difference. So I hope that Hannes, Tedesco, Nagelsmann, all of the names, I've probably forgotten a few, Sandra Schwartz, that they don't think about what Mehmet Scholl said, because it's not important. It's an opinion. He's allowed to hold that point of view. But the lads have all the stuff they need to go their own way in an incredibly difficult environment where everything is judged and controlled every day. So it's no picnic every day. From his empathy to his recognition of the value of learning, there's much to support about Klopp's answer. And in truth, the evidence in this chapter explains the efforts being made at the coaching academy to avoid exactly what Scholl feels is happening. Clearly, coaches are being taught systems, but also how to handle players, how to develop a wide foundation of competence, how to handle the media, how to manage their own and others' mental strength. They are given tools to survive in an intense working environment and ones that give them the best chance to adapt, a pivotal trait in any profession, but particularly in one as dynamic and evolving as football. Famous German filmmaker Werner Herzog believes the same. In Werner Herzog, A Guide for the Perplexed, Herzog mentions how important handling change is. Technical knowledge inevitably becomes dated. The ability to adapt to change will always be more important. It is hard to suggest that one of these coaching tools is more important than another, but being adaptable certainly gives any coach the best chance. 
And when the chance comes, you've got to take it. Remember Frank Volmut's words. The door is open to everyone, but you have to get in. And once you're in, you have to be good. Chapter 2. Key Lesson The sheer commitment to working hard and achieving excellence is, in my experience, a very German trait. Germans, on the whole, are not afraid to put in the time because they know that time will be recognised. They're not afraid to learn all of the aspects of their work because there's an understanding of the improvement that brings, both individually and collectively. Frank's words ring true. Again, if we want to do something, then we do it right. This is a cultural understanding across the country. Companies respect employees who work their way up from the intern position. Clubs respect coaches who have worked their way through youth teams. All the time, knowledge is being absorbed and experience is being gained in both the person and the coach. The learning process of life is respected and often rewarded. Mensch Beyond the Cones is available from ockleybooks.co.uk and from Amazon.